Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. Lehman Property Management Company has the apartment you will be able to call home with over 1,600 apartment units available in central Illinois. Visit them today at MidwestShelters.com or visit them on Facebook. I am so excited to introduce you to my guest, Dr. Christopher Yuan. Dr. Yuan has a radical redemption story and he's going to share it with us before diving into deeper conversations about singleness, sexuality, and prodigal children. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Dr. Yuan. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Well, let's just begin here. For those who are unfamiliar with your personal story, can you just give us a brief overview of how you came to faith in Christ? Well, you know, I was not raised in a Christian home. You know, a lot of times we go to church and Seems like people had some type of Christian upbringing. I, I didn't have any. We didn't go to own a Bible. We didn't go to church. I'm Chinese. So my parents were born in China, raised in Taiwan, and came to the United States for graduate school. And, you know, my parents, even though we weren't Christian, they raised me very strong family values. You know, I always joke, my mom being a kind of a typical tiger mom, three things that kind of stand out, obey your parents, do well in school and practice piano. That's kind of like the, you know, uh, very typical Chinese upbringing in the U.S. But I wrestled with my sexuality from a young age. And it wasn't until my early 20s that I actually came out of the open. I embraced a gay identity and I told my parents but, you know, it's so amazing how God used that crisis to bring my mother to faith and then my father to faith. Well, Laura, I wanted nothing to do what I saw as their crazy religion. I thought, good for you, not for me. Well, I went in the opposite direction. And while I, I'm from Chicago and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. And I was doing what all my other friends were doing, which was have fun and party, go out to the bars, go out to the clubs. And I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs. And I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy, happiness, which I, you know, I, I, at that time would probably say I found temporarily, but it still left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs, and you know, not all gays and lesbians do drugs. Some do, some don't. That is part of my story. But I, and I need to be honest when I tell you my story. But I also remind people that when you encounter the living Jesus Christ, He will impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but as a dental student, I didn't have much money. If I was going to do drugs, I had to support my habit, and I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. Well, eventually, you know, I thought I could live this double life, and eventually I was expelled from dental school. My parents flew from Chicago to Louisville, and in my mind, I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. I mean, you know, Laura, isn't that what any good Chinese parent would do anyway? Well, to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother told the dean it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. That was the exact opposite of what I experienced because my mom knew that nothing is more important than their children following Jesus, even more important than education, even more important than career. But I think the reality today is, you know, many people, many parents may go to church and worship God on Sunday, but they'll return home and worship idols. The idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And oftentimes we are actually forcing our children to do the same. I mean, if we think about this, parents, are they putting more emphasis on a daily basis on their children getting their homework done, getting a good grade, all good things. But are we putting more emphasis upon that than our children following Jesus? It's no wonder why many children go off to college, and they leave their faith behind. And I wonder if maybe they weren't really even worshiping God in the first place. So my mom, she knew that nothing was going to be more important than me following Jesus. And, well, I was not happy about her decision, you know, to be on the school side, what I saw as a school side. But she knew that that um, she was hoping that this would be rock bottom. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> 
I uh, moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and I kept doing what I knew how to do best, which was sell drugs. I became a drug supplier. This whole time, my parents were praying. They didn't even know I was doing drugs. They came to visit me one time. I told them to get out. And they weren't even preaching at me. You know, that's often what we hear. Oh, Christian parents, they're condemning. They preach the Bible to their kids, which is a good thing. But, you know, or they're telling me I'm living in sin. They didn't do any of that. But just the fact that God radically transformed their lives, that they radiated Jesus, that in itself was offensive to me. And I told them to leave. I didn't even give them an opportunity to call their friends to pick them up. But before my dad left, he gave me his Bible. And I'm thinking, I don't want your Bible. And he left it on my kitchen counter anyway, walked out the door. And as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible and threw it in the trash. That's how much I despise God, the Bible, Christianity. And it was so obvious to my mom and dad that I was just hopeless. But I'm so glad that my mom and dad did not focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over 100 prayer warriors, they began to cry out to God for me my mom began to pray a really bold prayer, which was, God, do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. And Laura, I'm sure, I mean, I'm not a mother, but I can bet that that's a really, really hard prayer for a mom to make. But she was desperate. It brings tears to my eyes even to hear that prayer, but please continue. Yeah. And one common response to that is from mothers, I, I'm not there yet. You know, like it, it's, I'm not ready to pray that scary, dangerous, risky prayer. And people say, oh, you know, tell my mom. And, and, I've, and I've often just heard it, you know, as, as I stood by the side, you know, you have so much faith. And my mom's response every single time is, no, I have little faith. That's why I needed to just... I was, she said, I was so desperate that that's all that she could do. And it was just in her desperation that she began fasting every Monday for seven years. Once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She would spend hours in her prayer closet on her knees. And I, I need to send you a picture of the prayer closet, which you can maybe post on, online. But it's it's so challenging how it was. And again, she'll even say it, it's not because she was strong in faith or it was just it's out of our desperation and i think desperation is just a really good place to be as a believer that we're so desperate for god that we're so desperate in our situation of our own brokenness of our own situation whether it's health or whether it's i mean a good friend of mine just told me she has to have a hysterectomy i mean you know that's a humongous life change and it's just in those situations that the only thing we can do is just say, God, help me. And, you know, reading through the Psalms, it's, it's the psalmist is just like, it's, it's this theme of desperation. God, you're my only hope. You're my only strong tower. You're my shield. So it was in this desperation that my mom just cried out to God saying, I totally can't change my son. Right. I mean, isn't that what parents want to do? Give me the solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> give me the recipe. Give me the 10 steps to fix my kid. And, you know, when parents email us and call us and number one, the hardest thing to communicate to parents is, is this, you can't change your child, especially your adult child, you know, younger kids, you, you have some time to mold them in our own home. But, you know, any mother of teenagers can know <laughs> how difficult teenagers can be. I mean, you know, and, and the funny thing is I wasn't even one of those difficult teenagers. I was a good kid. He was my brother that was a troublemaker. And then, you know, I grew up and I became the, you know, the hardened rebel. So my mom prayed for a miracle. Uh, she also, in her desperation, she enlisted over a hundred of her friends from church from her Bible study fellowship group to cry out to God for me. And they prayed for a miracle. And the miracle came with a bang on my door. It was my arrest. On my doorstep, 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd drug dogs. (laughs) I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated my money, my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. So I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. And I called home. I found myself in jail. I called home just expecting that you're full. I mean, who wants to call home from jail? 
called home, dreading making that make phone call, just imagining that you're full. And my, but my mother's first words were, "Are you okay?" No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. So a few days after that, I was called to the. Uh, I was walking around the cell block, and I passed by this garbage can, and I'm thinking, "That's my life, trash." I was about to pass it by, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. Bent over, pick it up, and it was Gideon's New Testament. <laughs> Took it back to my cell, began reading it, and you know, at first I wasn't thinking, "Oh, this is the answer." I actually thought, "I've got tons of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow." <laughs> but as we know. The Bible is not just ink on paper. It's the very breath of God. And I began reading it. It began to convict me of my sin. And I thought, at first, things weren't looking good. I'm a sinner. That's not a good thing. Well, things got worse. I was called to the nurse's office, and I was given the news that I was HIV positive. So one night, I was lying in my bed after that. And I was, I was thinking, I've just completely destroyed my life. I don't know how much time I even have here on Earth. You know, am I going to make it even through my prison sentence? I looked up to the metal bunk above me, and I saw that someone had scribbled something, and it read, If you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, Laura, at the most a hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was giving me the words, penned by prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation Israel to tell me that he still could have a plan for me. I had no idea where the plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith and enough strength to get through that one day, the next, and the next. Well, my transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my dependencies, obviously drugs, but within a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing my other idols, and there was one I felt like I just couldn't let go of, which was my sexuality. So I turned to the chaplain and I asked him his opinion. And you know what, Laura? He surprisingly told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, he even gave me a book explaining that view. And I'm thinking, great, now I have biblical justification. So I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And from a purely human perspective, I had every single reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But I know that it was God's indwelling Holy Spirit that convicted me that those assertions were a clear distortion of God in his word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of Scripture looking for justification. I couldn't find any. So, you know, I was at this turning point. Either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship, by allowing my attractions, and this is important, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived, or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship, how by freeing myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality shouldn't be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added so. Therefore, God does not want men to change. But I realize that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity shouldn't be defined by my sexuality alone. My identity is not gay. It's not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. You see, God says, be holy, for I am holy. And I thought that if I were to become a Christian, that I would have to become a heterosexual, which meant the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if I had opposite sexual attractions, I would still need to resist sin and run from temptation. So heterosexuality, yes, it's the right direction, but it's too broad that includes sinful behavior. And God would never encourage us to engage in sinful behavior. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling, whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. You know, Because Laura, actually change is not the absence of temptations, but change is a spirit-wrought ability to be holy 
even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. And so after this this work of God in my life, God began to reveal God's plan for me in prison, and he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized I needed to learn more about the Bible, so I asked my parents to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of, Moody Bible Institute, and they mailed me this application, and I was so excited, and I began filling it out until I got the end where I was asked for references <laughs> So I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. Amazingly, I was accepted, and I was released from prison, started at Moody uh, in 2001, graduated from Moody in 2005, then went on to Wheaton, get my master's in exegesis, and then finally my doctorate of ministry. And I had the incredible honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God. A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, which is actually now a textbook in many Christian high schools and parents all around the country are using it uh, as a way to, they read it with their kids, they use the free study guide at the back to engage their kids on questions and use story. Just as the Bible uses story to communicate theology, we we are using our story to communicate not only the beauty of the gospel and how it relates to sexuality, but communicate God's vision for biblical sexuality. And so it's really been my honor, but then I I kind of introduced this concept of holy sexuality in that book, Out of a Far Country. And so I knew I needed to fill that out. And and uh, so my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, is something that just came out in November 2018. And actually, it's the 2020 book of the year uh, for social issues by Outreach Magazine. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations on that accomplishment. And just hearing your story is so humbling because it was definitely an atypical path to becoming a Bible professor. But I want to go further into each one of those books that you referenced. So in your first book, Out of a Far Country, which you mentioned you co-authored with your mother, that's when you came out to your mom. And at that point, you said you both were not yet believers in Christ. That's right. So her initial response at that time was rejection. But then when she became a Christ follower and realized she was a sinner, then she was able to love you as God loves all of us sinners. So will you first just elaborate on that? Yeah, you know, because, Laura, we hear the narrative today that Christian parents who believe in the Bible, who believe in, you know, miracles and believe in a high view of Scripture are unable to love their gay children. And you actually have to almost shed off that ancient teaching of the Bible uh, to love gay children. Well, I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian. In essence, they rejected me. It wasn't until they became followers of Christ that they knew that they could do nothing other than to love me as, as God loved them. While they were still weak, while they were still sinners, while they were even enemies of God. And so it's it's just... It's so interesting how what the gospel can truly do, people who truly live out the gospel and communicate that, of course, we love everyone, but that does not mean that just because you love someone, that then you condone their sin. And I love for you specifically that you understood your sexuality through the Bible and through reading that, which Mm. is really the only way to freedom and truth. And so then in that most recent book titled Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, can you just elaborate on what you mean by holy sexuality? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's not a phrase that most people have heard before, but it, it birthed out of my frustration of the only paradigm that we have and, and this paradigm or framework is the heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual framework. And, and the reason why I was frustrated with this was, you know, in prison, you've got lots of time on, on your hands. And I just thought, okay, what is it that God is specifically calling me to? You know, if if homosexuality, uh, the behavior is sinful, the desire is sinful, the temptation, though, it's not sinful behavior, but it's definitely rooted in our sin nature, and it's a result of the fall, and so therefore it's not something that's good or even neutral. So if homosexuality is not God's will, 
then is heterosexuality God's will? But, you know, as I kind of explained in my testimony, heterosexuality, it's so broad. And this is, I think, an important thing for uh, for us to realize, especially as parents. You know, I, I sometimes have mothers that will, uh, you know, tell me, I wish my son was just normal. And I thought, well, what's normal? And, and you know, and in their mind, normal is heterosexual. So if their son was sleeping with their girlfriend, they're like, oh, well, that's fine as long as he's not gay. But sex outside of marriage, before marriage, is sin just as same-sex sexual behavior is sin. So I realized that this concept of heterosexuality, it's not actually something that is lifted up in the Bible as what God blesses. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have countless examples of heterosexual sin. So if we as Christians then kind of lift up heterosexuality as a standard, then inadvertently we're elevating sinful behavior. So what is it exactly that God is calling us to? God is precise. He's he's a black and white God. If, you know, Laura, if you look at the cover of my book, my cover, the, the cover of my book is actually black and white. And I did that quite intentionally because I wanted to communicate, though we're living in a world of infinite shades of gray, not just 50, God's truth, his, his vision for biblical sexuality is actually black and white. So holy sexuality, reading the full counsel of God, there's only two paths for us to be on when it comes to our sexuality. First is if you are single, how shall you live? You will live by being sexually abstinent. If you're married, you're on the other path, then how will you live? You will be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. And when I say marriage, I'm only using the definition that the Bible elevates as his standard, that Jesus uses, that in Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, that it's between one man and one woman. So holy sexuality is quite simply chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And God puts us on either path. And it can change over time. Like sometimes people can be married for 50 years and then, and then one when their spouse passes away and they find themselves single again. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in Matthew 22, we all will be single, but it's God who places us. And that's why I didn't say it's two options. I say that it's two paths, but I knew there was no, not one term that includes both of those because both are important. Heterosexuality says nothing about chastity and singleness. And so I, I knew that we needed to have a term that was inclusive of both of those paths and also, what I like about this is this applies to every person, whether you're a man or woman, young or old, whether regardless of whether you have opposite such attractions, same such attractions, or both, everyone is called to pursue holiness. And now a brief message from our sponsor. With over 1,600 apartment units available and with every price range covered, you will have plenty of options when you rent through Lehman Property Management Company. They have townhomes, duplexes, studios, and garden-style options located in many areas throughout Pekin. In Peoria, a historic downtown location and apartments adjacent to the OSF Medical Center provide excellent choices. Check out their brand new luxury property in Peoria Heights overlooking the boutique shops and fine dining on Prospect. And in Morton, they offer a variety of apartment homes with garages, a hot downtown location, and now a brand new high-end complex near Idlewood Park. They're beautiful, spacious apartments with private garages in a quiet but convenient location await you in Washington. And if you're looking in Canton, don't miss Village Square Apartments. Stop by their website at midwestshelters.com. I love how much study you've done on this topic, and we haven't really addressed it very much on the Savvy Sauce. And so, Christopher, from your experience reading the Bible, were there any parts that were especially meaningful or scripture that stood out that gave you so much clarity on holy sexuality? You know, I think it was just the biblical unity from beginning to end, you know, of what God is calling us to. I mean, not just the passages that uh, that was condemning sexual immorality, but you know, we have Genesis that begins with marriage, you know, with Adam and Eve. And then you have Revelation that ends with marriage, the the marriage supper of the Lamb. So 
all marriages actually are pointing to the ultimate reality of Christ and the church being united in the last days. And and then throughout, you know, we have in the Gospels, you know, Jesus' first miracle is done at a wedding. So we, we have all of this emphasis upon marriage and also sexual purity. Um, it was just so clear to me, but also a challenging thing about uh, something that as Christians we leave out or actually even shun or denigrate, and that's singleness. Jesus' singleness is, is something that is, I think, rarely talked about. Like, I mean, yes, Jesus is God and he is wholly other and unique, but he very specifically came to earth, took on flesh. Why? So that he could be among us, so that he could live our lives. So we have to both think of him as wholly other, but almost also the same. Uh, you know, that's that's why even the writer of Hebrews says that he can sympathize with us. Why? Because he lived our lives. He was here on earth. He struggled our struggles. Here on earth, he was fully human. It was the whole breadth of scripture that gave me this real clear vision of sexuality, and which is why, you know, my book wanted to uh, there's a lot of books so far that talk on the different biblical passages uh, that, that condemn homosexuality, but I wanted to give kind of a real broad picture, you know, because as Christians, we need to both look at the study the trees, but also study the forest. You know, we study the trees by looking at the different books or the different passages, but also study the whole forest. And, you know, so that's the difference between biblical studies and theological studies. And, and I felt like the, the, uh, looking at sexuality through the lens of theology, studying the whole forest, was a bit lacking in in the books that I have read. Uh, so that was my focus. It was almost just all of Scripture giving this really unified witness of uh, the beauty of biblical sexuality. And I think you bring up a great point that that is one way, that broad vision that sets your book apart from other Christian books on homosexuality. And you also teach that it's important to begin with identity, which is who we are. And in your book, you relate identity to an important theological term, theological anthropology. And that can be a mouthful. So can you unpack that for us? Yeah, I'd love to. So, you know, we learn these terms, and I think these are important terms that sound fancy and sound, you know, uh, really intellectual, but it's it's quite basic. If we just break it down, theological anthropology, anthropology is a study of humanity. It's a discipline. If you go to uh, the different universities and graduate schools, it's it's quite a atheistic discipline where they begin with the premise that there is no God. Well, if you begin with the wrong premise, there's really very, very little chance that you're going to come to the right conclusion. Well, Studying anthropology correctly is beginning with the right premise that there is a God. And why is that important to studying humanity? Because where did humanity come from? What's our purpose? And we understand that humanity, we were created by God. And more importantly, we are created in God's image. So to understand humanity, you need to begin with God. Therefore, theological anthropology is essentially the study of humanity through God's eyes. And there's different aspects. One that I just mentioned, that we're all created in God's image, and that's a wonderful thing. We have value, dignity, and purpose. Whereas those who don't believe in God, they have to create their own value and dignity and purpose through their actions, or it's given or received by others. Well, we don't receive it by anyone. We inherently have value and, and dignity and purpose. Why? Because we're created in God's image. But as we understand the the doctrine of the image of God, we also have to juxtapose it with something else, and that is the fall of man, Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned, and because of their rebellion, that threw all of creation in disarray, and all of humanity, we are now living the consequence of their rebellion. We call that the fall. Original sin is not... The actual sin of Adam and Eve, original sin may be a concept that, that many of your listeners have heard before. Original sin is actually the consequence of the fall. For example, we all have a sin nature. 
some of the past theologians have often said that uh, we are born with a nature to sin. Uh, we are born sinners by nature, and then later in life, we are sinners by choice. And so that's a reality that we all, all need to kind of recognize. And, and understanding human sexuality through the lens of anthropology um, helps us to understand things, for example, like even those, you know, my gay neighbor or my lesbian relative or loved one, they're created in God's image. And so I need to treat them as such with dignity and respect, but I want them to know Christ. I want them to know the only perfect image of God, who is Christ. And I want them to become children of God. See, not everyone is a children of God yet until they put their faith in Christ and then become adopted by God as sons and daughters. And we move from children of wrath to children of God. But also uh, this doctrine of sin and the fall helps us to understand. For example, we can answer the question when someone says, well, I've been this way for as long as I remember. If this person is a Christian, well, they should know the doctrine of sin, that we are sinners at birth, by birth. And um, Or people will say, well, I didn't choose this, so this can't be wrong. Well, no one chose to have a sin nature that doesn't make sin right. So actually, this framework really helps us to answer many of the questions that sometimes we get stuck as as Christians. Oh, thank you for explaining that. And in the past, we've focused so many episodes for the Savvy Sauce on marriage. But the last statistic I heard was approximately 50% of the church is single. So I'm thrilled to get to discuss singleness further today. How do you think that singleness is best understood in light of God's grand story? Yeah, so the subtitle of my book, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Well, God's grand story is the redemptive work of God on, uh, you know, among his people in, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And um, you know, there's, there's essentially four stages that we recognize as God's grand story. Creation, the fall, redemption, of course, the coming of Christ, and then last is consummation, uh, you know, the end times where all is made new. So it, understanding uh, marriage and singleness in light of that is so important. For example, I mentioned a little while ago that there will be no marriage in heaven. So, you know, even though marriage is just a fixture of this time and this earth, this period, there will be no more earthly marriage as we know of it. There, you know, marriage between man and woman, Matthew chapter 22. And ultimately, it's, it's because the, the purpose of all marriages is to point people to Christ's love for the church and the love of the church for the church's bridegroom, which is uh, Jesus Christ himself. Um, so it will be done away with when the ultimate becomes reality, meaning Christ weds the church, then there's no more purpose or need for the shadow, which is earthly marriage, husband and wife. Uh, but singleness, understanding it in light of God's grand story, in other words, gen, you know, from creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, particularly the end times, you know, uh, the last day will, where we will be united with Christ, that um, all of us will be single. And, you know, our singleness is really our final state. M many times people think singleness as this temporary state before you get married. But in actuality, in light of God's grand story, marriage is actually this temporary state before eternity. And when we think about it in those terms, and also the aspect of redemption, Christ coming, Christ who, who is our Redeemer, uh, and yet he was a single man, fully human, as a single individual, which we often forget and kind of leave out, you know, we need to be really conscious about not denigrating singleness to the point where even some churches would not even hire a single pastor, single, a, a pastor, an individual who is single, which to me then is shocking because if Jesus himself or Paul even, the apostle, lived today, they would not be able to serve in the majority of our churches today, which is, you know, really reveals that there's something wrong then with our understanding of singleness. But 
there's a lot that we get wrong that I talk about in my book that as the church, we need to redeem and reclaim the beauty of singleness and the goodness of singleness. Uh, and, we're, and we're not playing the, the game of the world where they just single because they want to they, they don't they don't want to be responsible or, uh, you know, take on any type of commitment. That's incorrect. But sometimes church leaders think that the way that, you know, to fix an individual who's single and irresponsible is that they just need to get married. And I think it's a bad idea to tell someone who is irresponsible and fearful of commit just to just get married. My answer to these individuals is you must be born again. I mean, if if you're fearing responsibility and and you are uh, don't you know, you don't want to be committed to anything, I would encourage you be committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again. Um, and it's through that being born again that you will realize our call as Christians to be responsible and not be fearful of co- commitment. Uh, because actually, I think the best way to prepare for marriage is simply just be born again. I, I think there's nothing better in marriage than to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let God be the one who is the one that is overseeing us in the Holy Spirit, indwelling both husband and wife and guiding us and purifying us and making us holy. What have been your favorite episodes of The Savvy Sauce? What applications have led to life change or transformation for you? Episodes with Drew Hunter and Kim Weir remind us that we can never have too many friends and we desire to go deeper in our friendship with you. We wanna hear your stories. So I want to invite you to continue the conversation with us either through social media, We can be found on Instagram and Facebook at The Savvy Sauce or through emailing info at thesavvysauce.com or you could leave a comment on our articles at thesavvysauce.com. Whichever way you choose, we can't wait to hear from you and learn from your journey. Many of us know someone, a relative or a friend who identifies as gay So from your perspective, what are some things that we should do and things we should not do as we seek to love them? Yeah, you know, there's a few things, some mistakes that we make. And and, and some of these are just things that we say, whether it's just a specific term or phrase. Uh, There's a couple terms that I often encourage people to avoid. Uh, One is lifestyle. I think that is part of our vocabulary because we recognize that our sin Uh, expresses itself in behavior. And so we want to change that. And we don't want to live a life of sin. So when we look at our friends who identify as gay, they're living in sin, and it is a lifestyle. But the reason why I encourage people to avoid that term is, for one, it's often offensive to those in the gay community. And I never use that word uh, when I identified as a gay man. And the main reason is because I conflated my identity with my sexuality. You see, I think, I mean, if there's anything that the listeners will take away, it's this. Christians, what we don't realize is what I see as the first biggest mistake that those in the gay community make. And it's not that they don't see that their behavior is sin. Yes, that is a mistake, but in my mind, that's not the primary or first mistake. The primary or first mistake that they make is that they have the wrong identity. They make their sexuality who they are. For example, Laura, if you have any friend or you know anyone who identifies as gay, and if you were to ask them, what do you mean when you say, I am gay? They will never answer and say, oh, this is what I feel, or this is what I do. You know what they'll say instead? They will say, when I say I'm gay, What I mean is this. I mean, this is who I am. So the shift from what to who has really created this radically distorted view of personhood. And so sexuality actually is not who we are. It's how we are. So that is the reason why we avoid that term lifestyle. Uh, And we also avoid uh, people cornering us into an argument. Very simply, here's an example. You know, how often maybe if you have a friend who knows that we're Christian, they're not Christian and they identify as gay, could be a relative, a neighbor, someone maybe you know well, but they just kind of despise our Christianity. And they may maybe have asked, do you think this is sin? 
Well, that question is not like a sincere question, like, oh, you know, I would really like to know your opinion. Instead, they want us to prove to them that we are one of those closed minded, you know, whatever, bigoted, right wing, you know, whatever adjective they want to kind of put in front of who we are. I'm not going to allow people to put me into their box. Instead, in those situations, because, and I take the example of Jesus. Jesus did not answer every question. Look at the example with Pilate. He was silent. Many other instances, Jesus answered a question with a question. (laughs) Sometimes Jesus did give an answer, and he would give an answer, but it was an answer to a different question. And because he's God, and he knew what was more important, and specifically the question that they're asking is not even the most important question. So when people ask, is this sin? It's an important question, but not the most important question, because even if I were to convince them that, that this behavior was sinful, that in and of itself would not save them. So I think it's okay to almost deflect, not to avoid the question, but to deflect the more important question, which is, is there a God? And if there is a God, which there is, then is is he the God of Israel and God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Jesus, who is his son. I want to talk about those things. For example, if someone says, do you think this is sin? One response could be, I know you don't even believe in God, so what does it matter to you what God thinks? Before we talk about this, let's first talk about the existence of God and whether there is God or not, because that's more important. Because those type of conversations would actually point to the gospel and salvation as opposed to talking simply about morality is only going to get us to legalism. I love that paradigm shift. And you also put a lot of emphasis on the local church ministering to people who experience same-sex attractions. And I think this does tend to be missed a lot. So why do you think it's been neglected? And why do you think it's so important to not gloss over this in the church? Yeah, I think it's our tendency to be very pragmatic, like everything's practical. Give me 10 steps. Give me this, you know, give me a group. Give me, you know, a, a professional to help me through those. And and these are, groups and, and counselors are, are helpful. But if we make them our only solution for sin, then I think that misses what the what the what God is communicating to us through his word. We always need to diagnose things correctly. And the diagnosis for homosexuality isn't that this is a disease or developmental problem. The Bible calls this sin. You know, I, I just take the Bible seriously and I take it if the Bible calls it sin, I believe that it is sin. It's not sin and also it's a developmental problem. It's sin. And so It's recognizing that if it is sin and we diagnose it correctly, and the incorrect diagnosis is say that it's some type of, you know, maybe an upbringing problem or maybe a psychological issue, and then it becomes more of a, uh, you know, a human answer. But sin is a spiritual problem, and if it's a spiritual problem, then we need a spiritual answer. Therefore, if sin is a problem, Christ is the answer, and if Christ is the answer— then the body of Christ is a big part of that solution as well. But regrettably, in conversations around sexuality, and particularly homosexuality, the local church is often an option or an afterthought. And my hope is, through my book, is to actually put the church back in its rightful position as the main locus, the main uh, place where sanctification, discipleship happens. Certainly those things can happen in one-on-one relationships, but really all of that needs to be guided in the context of the local church. And, you know, Laura, I, I work with college students and college students, you know, they love their independence and they often have this tendency to think, I don't need the church. And there can be nothing further from the truth. There's no way that we can say we love Jesus and not love the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. I even hear individuals, young adults, they say, oh, I don't need to go to church. You know, me and my friends, we are the church, but actually they're wrong. Even me and my friends, we're not 
the church. We're not the body of Christ. We're just individual members of the body of Christ. For example, I mean, most people that I know, that you know, them and their friends, they're all similar people. So oftentimes when, when you know one of my students say something like that, I say, no, you and your friends, you're not the body of Christ. You and your friends, you're just a bunch of right ears or a bunch of left toes. You know, you're all the same. And what we need is a diversity. You need people that are older than us, younger than us. Married people need single people around them. Single need, people need married people around them. We need people of all different stripes and all different types of socio socioeconomic um all variety all different you know races and tongues and that's what the body of christ is we need that diversity to to live fully in in the way that god intends us so that's why it's important when it comes to this topic of sexuality that we have to do this in light of viewing the importance of the body of christ the local church and I love that because that emphasizes unity, which is not defined as sameness. And so I love how you brought that to light. And Christopher, our time is winding down together, but there's still so much we could learn from you. So where can listeners find and follow you online? Sure. My website is my full name, ChristopherYuan.com. And my last name is spelled Y-U-N. A N Yuan. It's actually the same word for uh, the Chinese dollar. <laughs> ChristopherYuan.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, Christopher Yuan, or Instagram, Christopher Yuan, or Facebook, Christopher Yuan. Uh, but then also my two books, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, is on Amazon. And Out of a Far Country is a book that I wrote with my mother. That's the first book. And that can be found on Amazon as well. Wonderful. We will add that to our show notes and on our website to make it easily accessible for everyone to find those resources. And you may know that we're called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or insight or discernment. And so as my final question for you today, what is your Savvy Sauce? Well, since, Laura, probably a lot of your listeners are women, mothers, I believe some of them probably may be mothers of prodigals. And um, I just want to maybe just share some of my you know, prodigal tip for mothers who have prodigals. And maybe there might be listeners who have a child who identifies as gay. And oftentimes these parents of prodigals wrestle with shame and guilt and ask this question, what have I done wrong? And yet when we realize and look at what scripture teaches, the reality that the problem is sin and Jesus is the answer, the reality is that even a perfect parent, their children are going to be sinners. This is an important thing that I always want parents to realize. It's not your fault. Perfect parenting doesn't guarantee perfect children. Look at Adam and Eve. They had a perfect father. And Adam and Eve still rebelled. I, I really believe that the primary job of a Christian parent actually is not to produce godly children. We wish we could, but we're not God. We pray for it and we, we point our kids to Christ, but we can't actually do it. So I believe actually the, the primary job of a Christian parent is not to actually produce godly children because we can't do that. But the primary job is simply to be a godly parent. Point your children to Jesus, whether they're adult, whether they're still in your home, and then let God be God. Dr. Yuan, you have a captivating way of articulating your journey from prisoner to professor, from unbeliever to Christ follower. So thank you for entrusting your story with us today. It was such an honor to get to have this conversation with you. Thank you for being my guest. Oh, it was my honor, Laura. Thanks for having me on. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. 
But God loved us so much, He made a way for His only Son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with Him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10:9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.